The National Archives podcast series. There is no aspect of government activity on which the state papers may not throw light. The papers are of the Secretaries of State, 1509 to 1782. Presented by Dr Adrian Ailes and Dr Katie Mayer. Well, in case you're wondering which of the two I am, I'm Adrian. And I'll be handing over to Katie a little bit later on. Well, like Gaul, uh, this talk is going to be divided into to three parts this afternoon. I'm going to start with a quick overview with some examples of what the state papers are. Uh, Katie is then going to talk on how the state papers came about and their history. And then I shall finish briefly with how to access the state papers here at the National Archives. And we hope to speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll have questions at the end. So what exactly are the state papers, this extraordinary class of documents held here at TNA under the Departmental Letter Code SP. Well, put simply, they are the papers of the Sovereign's principal secretaries and principal secretaries of state during the early modern period. In other words, they are the formal and informal correspondence and papers of the chief executive officers of the Crown between 1509, the first year of the reign of Henry VIII, and 1782, when the Home Office and Foreign Office, names perhaps more familiar to us, were established. They develop into a large class of records fairly early on, about 1518. And the state papers cover both the internal governance of the country and the conduct of foreign policy in the form of letters, rough drafts, memoranda and reports, private and government papers, lists, petitions, treaties and treatises, maps, orders in council, depositions, warrants, ciphers, and newsletters, and I could go on and on, so varied and diverse is this particular category of records. For the reign of Henry VIII, the state papers contained both domestic and foreign material, but it was later decided that from Henry's death in 1547, they should be divided into state papers domestic and state papers foreign. The state papers here at TNA are voluminous. The domestic papers alone for just 1547 to 1640 fill over 1,100 manuscript volumes. The growth of this vast new collection of archives actually led to the creation of a new office with its own keeper, the State Paper Office. And Katie is going to tell you more about that a little bit later. There is nothing like the State Papers for the Middle Ages. A few medieval records of a similar type do exist for the domestic scene with more for the equivalent to state papers foreign. But otherwise, the state papers are very much a new archive, transforming the approach of the historian. In many respects, they reflect the transition of government to modern times. They are the backbone of early modern government. As the eminent Tudor historian Sir Geoffrey Elton put it, and I quote, there is no aspect of government activity on which the state papers may not throw light. Individuals, character, personalities, all emerge from relative obscurity. For the first time, we go behind the scenes. We're able to detect motives and ideals, and we can discover policy making. The state papers are thus vast, complex, and highly revealing. But their survival owes much, at least initially, to accident. Officials had often retained their papers on retirement. The archive only exists because certain collections were acquired from individuals, such as those of the ruthless bureaucrat and reformer Thomas Cromwell, confiscated at his fall in 1540. Or they were later made up like those of the arch-information gatherer Sir Joseph Williamson, 
Secretary of State during the reign of Charles II. The papers of some secretaries have, therefore, ended up in the British Library or in private collections, such as those of William Cecil, Lord Burley, which are now a Hatfield House in Hertfordshire. Well, just about all human life can be found in the state papers, from high to low, whether it is a transcript of the trial of Charles I, and here we see the dramatic moment when the king demands to be heard after his sentence, but is swiftly put down by the judge, no, sir, guard, withdraw your prisoner. Or it could be the record of three ordinary folk debating the merits of a female sovereign, in this case, Mary I. If a woman bear the sword, my lady Elizabeth ought to bear it first, says one. And I remember finding in volume four to state papers Edward VI, amongst other things, and uh, I shall list them, a receipt for a gentle purgation, quote, most pleasant of all purgations, prunes boiled with manna, also closely followed by news of fish stocks off Iceland, and that one part of one volume. The State Papers Domestic also contain much for family historians. Muster rolls, such as here for Derbyshire in 1638, full of names of men between certain ages. Also masters and owners of ships. Petitions from abused wives. Lists of officers of the Crown. Families uprooted and displaced by the violence and disruption of the Civil War. Returns of aliens, recusants, funeral certificates of the gentry, military prisoners and much, much more. The state papers domestic and foreign can be divided into the following areas, beginning with the domestic side. Firstly, the main chronological sequence of successive sovereigns with normally one major series per reign. So we have, for example, SP1 for Henry VIII, SP12 for Elizabeth, SP14 for James I, which includes the gunpowder plot documents, and finishing with SP37 for George III. And here in front of you, we have a letter in SP10, the State Papers, for Edward VI's reign. It was written by Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, sometime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. on January the 29th, 1547, and it was sent to Sir William Paget, the King's principal secretary. The old King, Henry VIII, bloated and obese, has finally passed away. Seymour, who was soon to become the new King, the new boy King's protector, is keen to hold back news of Ed Henry's death and to sort out the will only recently revised. But particularly revealing is Seymour's note, scratched on the back of this document, just under Paget's name. It is a clear and unequivocal instruction to the messenger who is to ride through the cold winter's night to Westminster, where the king's body lay. It reads, I quote, haste, post haste, haste with all diligence for thy life, for thy life. There's a great sense of immediacy, something rarely found in the medieval record. The state papers here afford us a rare glimpse behind the scenes of government at this crucial moment in our history. Continuing with our breakdown of the state papers domestic and interrupting the flow of sovereigns' reigns, we come to the huge number of papers produced by the parliamentary committees and councils of state that ran the country during those late troublesome times, the Civil War and interregnum. And this is a rather interesting deposition to the Committee for the Advance of Money, dated the 26th of August, 1648, from a servant who, having just buried his royalist master following the Battle of Lansdowne, has now swapped sides and taken up arms for Parliament. And this clearly confused the poor chap taking down his statement, since he had assumed the servant would fight for the king, as the servant's royalist master had done. 
and had therefore first written the king, but then had to change it to parliament, as you can see. And it captures rather neatly the confusion and chaos of the times of traitors and turncoats in a topsy-turvy world. Besides the papers for Henry VIII in SP1, we have several other series for the reign, for the reign in SP2 to SP7. And these include theological tracts and papers relating to the dissolution of the monasteries. And this is a draft list of instructions to the commissioners sent out in 1536 to visit and survey those monasteries due to be dissolved during the King's Reformation. In addition to the series of sovereigns, civil war papers, and Henry VIII collections, there are a number of subject or miscellaneous domestic series, including the following. SP9, State Papers Miscellaneous. This is the eclectic papers of Sir Joseph Williamson, whom we saw earlier. They include much heraldic and genealogical material, such as this original grant of arms. Another subject class on the domestic side is the state papers military and naval. The War Office had not yet been formed, and such matters initially came under the principal secretaries of state. And here we see a list of prisoners taken after the 1745 Jacobite Rising. And it, in it includes the man who ferried Bonnie Prince Charlie over the sea to the Isle of Skye. Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to break into song at this point. <laughs> I can see you're disappointed, but perhaps later. Anyway, the, the early modern team here at TNA, ably assisted by an excellent team of volunteers, are currently very busy cataloguing the state papers military and naval, as well as the state papers domestic, for the reigns of George I and George II, in preparation for the anniversary in three years' time of the 1715 and 45 Risings. And finally, amongst the subject and miscellaneous series on the domestic side of the state papers are the internal records of the state paper office itself, namely the entry books, precedents, and proclamations. And some of these records continued into the 19th century, since the state paper office, which you see before you, only closed in 1852. State papers foreign can be subdivided into sovereigns, uh, the sovereign's reigns between 1547 and 1577, then individual countries from 1577 to 1782, into treaties and treaty papers, printed newsletters, pamphlets and gazettes forwarded by English agents abroad, maps, various letters and entry books, correspondence with embassies and legations, and finally, ciphers. Two further categories uh, should be mentioned, though they are not classified as state papers. You might see in the map room and in libraries uh, published calendars to state papers Rome or Venetian or Milan or Spanish. And these are praises in English of material held in archives abroad relating to English affairs and do not refer to documents created by the secretaries of state or by the state paper office and held here. Thus there is a difference, for example, between state papers Spanish and state papers Spain, the former being documents held in Spanish archives, the latter being public records concerning Spain and held at TNA. The other anomaly concerns the colonies. In 1768, the Secretary of State for the Colonies was appointed, but following the loss of America in the War of Independence, the post was abolished, and the colonial papers were later amalgamated with those of the Colonial Office. So you will find those records in TNA under CO, Colonial Office, rather than SP, State Papers. Finally, in our breakdown of the various categories that make up the State Papers, and in addition to the State Papers, domestic and foreign, are, neatly sandwiched between the two, the State Papers for Ireland 
and the State Papers for Scotland, Scotland being a foreign country until 1603. Well, that's a very quick overview of this uh, particularly diverse class of records. Lorda. Good afternoon. In August 1615, the Keeper of the State Papers, Thomas Wilson, paid a visit to Arthur Agard, the Keeper of the Exchequer Records, to discuss certain documents that he was hoping to take into the State Paper Office. The meeting failed to take place for the simple reason that Wilson found Agard dead, the good man's body breathless, as he writes in this letter. And instead of discussing the custody of the state records, Wilson found himself at a burial. Shock at Agard's death appears to have been superseded somewhat by professional concerns, as Wilson wrote hurriedly to his son-in-law and joint keeper of the state paper office, Ambrose Randolph, urging him to sue for Agard's position, as not only would this make our own office perfect and do the King and State General service, but it would also block the advances of Sir Robert Cotton, that avid collector of manuscripts, who already, by having such things as he hath, cunningly scraped together, doth put me out of all employment. Not only is this incident illustrative of Wilson and Cotton's lifelong rivalry for the possession of the papers of state, but it also gives us some idea of the serendipitous nature of the existence of the state papers in this period with Wilson and Cotton acting rather like butterfly collectors, attempting to net the choicest papers for their collections, rather than there being any truly systematic retention of the papers. Those papers Wilson managed to gather are now form part of the state paper collection here at the National Archives. Those Robert Cotton collected are now in the British Library, um, while other significant collections remain in private hands, um, a fragmentation that testifies to the lack of formalised record-keeping. Although a dedicated repository for the papers of state seems to have been in existence from at least 1578, and although Thomas Wilson had taken an oath in 1612 to serve the king truly and faithfully as clerk, keeper and registrar of his majesty's papers and records for matters of state established at Whitehall to preserve said papers and records from harm and damage, not to suffer any to be purloined, embezzled or defaced, to keep secret such things therein contained as shall be fit for His Majesty's service to be concealed, and to do his best to recover such papers as may have been detained or embezzled by private persons. In practice, his role was beset by numerous obstacles, and the paper office, as it was frequently referred to, struggled to retain control of those documents of importance to the state. To quote one historian, before the reign of Charles I, all existing state papers are undoubtedly the remnant preserved by accident, the accident of personality or rats. Today I will try and outline the role played by the state paper office in the first quarter of the 17th century in assembling the state paper series as we currently know it, and to consider how the problems faced by the state paper office are at the root of what makes it such a complicated series. It is perhaps best to begin with some background information to the State Paper Office. As Adrian outlined in his introduction, the documents in the State Papers are the working papers of the Secretary of State, or, or the Principal Secretary, as the position is sometimes known. The roots of the office can be traced back to the 14th century, when the King's Secretary became Keeper of the Signet, um, the King's private seal, which was used to authorise issues under the Privy Seal and Chancery, and to seal personal correspondence of the Sovereign. As with other government departments, this household office evolved into a public office, and by the reign of Henry VIII, um, the status of the Secretary of State was formally established by statute. They became, as one historian writes, the middleman in diplomatic, political and administrative affairs, and as the person in close touch with the King and responsible for his correspondence, the Principal Secretary was the natural instrument of the royal prerogative. 
The secretary was, in the words of um, Sir Walter Mildmay, the ear and mind of the prince, yea, her pen and mouth. As well as drawing up the royal letters, the secretary oversaw the initial stages of formalising grants and pardons, and thereby became the channel through which communication was conducted with the sovereign. They held a position on the Privy Council, advising the monarch on both political and administrative governance, and represented the Crown in the House of Commons. Diplomatic relations were controlled by the Secretary's office as well, and as a consequence, it became the central hub for intelligence gathering, uh, tracking foreign and domestic threats to security. The increased influence of this position unsurprisingly caused a proliferation of correspondence and paperwork, and the wide range of responsibility produced a diverse range of records. The development of the office also had an archival impact, as unlike the careful unrolling of business that took place in the Chancery, there was no provision for the official recording of much of the business carried out by the Secretary. Unlike the papers of other government departments, such as those in Chancery and Exchequer, the State Papers did not take on a formal archival shape until after the Restoration. Public records had chiefly been considered of use for litigants, landowners and taxpayers, and therefore concern about the preservation of documents focused on those only useful for that purpose. The manner in which the, the business of the Secretary of State was carried out was via letter writing, and the form of the document that makes up most of the State Paper series is, of course, letters. Um, and this also may be partly be to blame for the lack of speed with which the keeping of the State Papers was formalised. Letters straddle the personal and the domestic, uh, the personal and the public, and although they often dealt with matters of domestic and foreign significance, secretaries were wont to treat their papers as their private possessions, and frequently took them home upon resignation of their post. Letters are problematic for historians for other reasons, um, and in, this, in state papers, they often don't have a year on, on the letters um, from, about, from before 1550. Letters are also in letters for the most part, so we'd get a rather one-sided view if we just used the state papers. Um, although the secretaries had rooms in different palaces, papers would have been kept in each location, but the office space was minimal, so again, this is another reason for, for why they often took their papers home with them. So the paper office was established to try and counteract the dripping away of the state papers into private hands. However, although the keeper was bound by oath to collect the state papers, there still existed a lack of political will to really carry through the letter of the law, and the failure of the paper office to effectively gather and retain the papers of state during the 16th century can be seen from Thomas Wilson's assessment at the beginning of James I's reign that there are two sorts of papers, those that have been kept long at Whitehall and those brought from Salisbury House, far greater in number. The Salisbury House collection, of course, the papers of William Cecil, um, Secretary of State to Elizabeth, and consisted only of a very small chunk of his papers, and the rest, of course, remaining with his family, um, forming the Hatfield House collection. While those papers at Whitehall are the papers that had been actually retained by the paper office, um, we can get some idea of what papers, what these papers were, what papers he found in, this, in the office when he arrived um, from this list written by Ralph Sadler, who was Secretary of State between 1540 and 1543. Um, this is entitled, Bags of Books, Letters and Other Writings Remaining in the Study at Westminster and in Several Tills Within the Same. This lists the, the type of documents found there, the type of documents we would expect from um, state papers. We've got a little bag of matters of Venice, a little bag touching the king's matter at Rome, with two other bags of matters of Rome and Italy, a bag of letters, confessions, etc., touching the matter of the last queen attainted. The second list 
is headed um, special things in the study in a till written upon special matters and contains letters of patent, a roll of the household of Prince Arthur and also the Lady Mary, a note of fines of, of justice in King Edward I's days, various passports um, and a letter with instrument to the Cardinal of the King Majesty's own hand. From internal evidence they can be dated to around 1551 but it's difficult to, to pinpoint why they were made at this point. Um, Sadler was no longer Secretary of State, though he still remained in high office and could reasonably have been expected to have access to the state papers. Um, some documents in the, in the list have been marked with a cross and a little circle there, suggesting it might have functioned as an inventory. Um, and there's a similar list, not in Sadler's hand, um, from 1585, so it suggests this may have been common practice. I have tried to look for some of these documents to see if I can work out whether they still are in the state papers. I've only had luck with one. Um, that's the document described as a device of Sir Thomas Wharton's opinion for preservation of peace between England and Scotland and the good order of the marches. And this could reasonably be a document found in SP1. Um, but unfortunately, the, the idiosyncratic descriptions of the documents and the way he's grouped them into sort of sections makes it difficult to trace them. So even if it's not possible to track how far the contents of the State Paper Office in 1551 <coughs> reflect what is now in the collection, it does give us some idea that there was a basic collection in existence in the second half of the 16th century from which our archive must have originated. So who were the keepers and what was their day-to-day -day role? Well, according to Thomas Wilson's account, which I have up here, um, the, off the position had been established under the Great Seal in 1578 when um, Dr. Thomas Wilson was appointed clerk of the papers alongside his position as Secretary of State. The office was then held by Dr. James, who was then succeeded by Thomas Lake, who held the post until 1606, um, and when confusingly the next Thomas Wilson succeeded him. Several articles suggest that, the, um, that he is the nephew of the first clerk, but we have no evidence to support this. Um, and in his own account, Wilson writes he helped the elder Wilson order the papers of a boy of 16, but he fails to mention any fam family relation, so I suspect it's not true. In March 1610, a patent re-established a state paper office in Whitehall Palace under Thomas Wilson and Lavinius Monk. In 1614, Monk resigned and Thomas Wilson became joint keeper with his son-in-law, Ambrose Randolph. In 1629, Randolph di uh, Wilson died and Randolph surrendered it. And in 1633, a joint patent was granted to Randolph and William Boswell. In 1640, it was granted to Thomas Raymond in reversion after the deaths of surrenders of the two prior patentees. Um, and in 1661, Joseph Williamson succeeded to the post and held it until 1702, also holding the position of Secretary of State as well. Um, it is the career of the second Thomas Wilson that I would like to focus on for the rest of the talk, as his numerous letters effectively illuminate the trials and tribulations of the clerk of papers. As the oath I quoted shows, their role was to preserve and protect the state papers from, from threats and to recover them where necessary. Um, the process was for a warrant to be issued upon the death or resignation of a Crown official and for their papers to be delivered to the clerk of papers, who was then charged with assessing and ordering them. Um, the addition of papers to the state paper office should have been an annual occurrence, but in practice it wasn't, and Wilson complained in 1617 that it is now nearly five years since they had, been, had by strong hand been kept from him. Some officials bequeathed their papers to the paper office, but more often than not they were retained by the family or passed into the hands of others. And I've got a warrant here, which um, is orders Sir Michael Hicks and Robert Kirkham to deliver the papers up 
to, li to deliver the papers of William Cecil. Um, so clearly, at this stage, state papers are already drifting out of the hands of the officials and their families into other interested parties. In order to rectify the neglect of previous keepers, Wilson embarked on a period of acquisition in order to supplement the batch of Tudor state papers found in the office. Um, he, obtain, he obtained a warrant to obtain an exemplification of the last will and testament of Henry VIII that was held in the Treasury, and in 1622, he succeeded in getting the papers of Sir Edward Cook, who had served as Chief Justice and Attorney General, removed from the Inner Temple. And this set of documents include documents on the business of the late Earl of Essex, the powder treason, the proceedings against Sir Walter Riley, Brooke, etc., Peacham's business, and other matter concerning the Countess of Shrewsbury. Um, and the Countess of Shrewsbury ones are quite interesting because I think you can now, I think that now is a volume that's now in um, SP12. So having evidence of the possible provenance of that volume uh, aids our understanding of that document substantially or the documents in that volume substantially. Thomas Wilson's Bill of Services, uh, done in office, gives us some idea of his, some idea of his duties. Um, as he charges for providing transcripts of the Treaty of Marriage between Queen Catherine and Prince Arthur, collecting and making a book of all the offices under the Lord Treasurer himself, transcribing previous instructions to foreign ambassadors, translating letters, cataloguing, and also writing a discourse for the understanding of the equinoctical dial and other of Raleigh's mathematical instruments. So he was clearly quite a busy man. He tackled the organisation of the papers in his office with um, an enthusiasm unmatched by any of the previous keepers. In his description of how he ordered the papers he found in the office and those passed to him from, from Salisbury House, he tells how he has spent eight years in reducing them out of extreme confusion and bound up the most part according to their subject heads and years. But now those books must be all broken up and the papers thus divided must be made up all in one according to their heads and countries. So he's reorganising the archive and mixing the, two pa the, mixing the papers. Um, and then he splits the whole run into domestic, domestical or foreign. He then divided the foreign papers into separate countries and the domestic papers into seven headings, regalia, legalia, ecclesiastica, militaria, politica, criminalia and mechanica. Um, the papers were then bound into large volumes, as Wilson actually believed this helped to prevent theft, a significant problem for the office, as we shall see in a moment. The documents were kept in wainscoted cupboards and the fires were lit regularly in the room to prevent them from rotting. The organisation of the papers would have helped his day-to-day -day role as he was regularly called upon to search the archives on behalf of the King and Council. He's often ordered to search for different warrants um, to, pr to prove precedent. And as anyone who's carried out archival research knows, um, searching for documents can be quite an arduous task and in the pre-calendared existence it must have been particularly long-winded. Therefore, it's no surprise he petitions the Earl of Suffolk for the allowance of £40 per annum in his lordship's gift, which he may assign to those who take pains in searching and abstracting records for his majesty's service. The onerous task of keeper, as conceived by Wilson, is obviously not well remunerated. In another, another petition, Thomas Wilson asked to be allowed a diet of two dishes of meat per meal for himself and servant, or such reasonable allowance for the same in consideration of his salary as Keeper of the State Papers being but bare £30 a year, without diet or other benefit for all the charge and pains in keeping continually two clerks to transcribe, abstract and collect for the King's service, besides all his own pains, and other servants to bind up the papers into books. So he's acting as an acquisition officer, a cataloguer and a conservator, and all for about £30 a year, or 
about £3,000 in today's money, if you believe the TNA currency converter. Um, Wilson's petitioning reaches a climax in 1616 when he writes to the king that he has served his majesty for 26 years of his life, appointed to peruse, register, abstract and put in order all your majesty's papers for business of state, which I found in extreme confusion, and he has spent ten painful years reducing them into that due order and form that your majesty has approved, and the highest bound of his ambition is to do his majesty acceptable service, more acknowledged, and not be buried amongst dead papers whereof there is not so much use made as the treasure therein hidden deserves. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> he does eventually get £200 for his services, but continues to struggle for payments for his duties, um, and even after his death his wife is, is petitioning the king for payment owed to Wilson. The paper office occupied the second story above Holbein Gate from at least 1618. Holbein Gate was built in 1532 um, to connect the eastern and western buildings of Whitehall. Prior to 1618, it's harder to track the exact location of the papers. Sadler's list of documents are described as being in the study at Westminster, as we saw, and there is an earlier reference which shows that the records were kept in a location described in the same way in 1546. That reads, obligations signed and sealed by the Chancellor and others of Council, brought in and cancelled, but ordered to be preserved in the study at Westminster. There were three studies at Westminster, and none of the contents of these studies, as taken in, in uh, Henry VIII's inventory, indicate anything like Ralph Sadler's lists, the closest possibly being the study by the King's old bedchamber. Okay, so in 1597, the office appears to have been situated underneath the banqueting house, um, as there is a note of works. Um, to make a chimney in Dr. James's office under the banqueting house, who was, of course, one of the keepers. In around 1618, the king, understanding that the place where his papers are now kept is so weak that it were an easy matter for any to break in and embezzle them, has thought upon a great chamber in the Tower of Whitehall as a very fit place for them. At this, place, it, at this point, the papers seem to have been moved to Holbein Gate. And despite the king's opinion of the suitability of these rooms, Wilson actually believed they're too small um, and that they'd only be suitable if he could devise to place the business of some particular foreign countries in the little turrets adjoining. That's another view. Documents were actually found in um, the turrets when it came to be demolished in the 18th century. Um, Holbein Gate does not appear to have been far removed from the original location of the documents, um, as a warrant orders that they were removed to the stone tower next adjoining. But this move was very important, as it was far enough to prevent the loss of papers in the fire of 1619, which raised Banqueting House to the ground. And Wilson writes joyfully that due to the king's timely providence in removing papers under his custody into a place of better security, not so much hurt had been sustained as the worth of a blank paper. This was perhaps an excessively positive gloss on the fire, as later keepers complained that the papers were lost or damaged as they were flung into blankets and taken to safety. Um, but in contrast with the records of the offices of the Signet and the Privy Seal, many which were destroyed in the same fire as they were housed underneath the banqueting house, um, the estate papers appeared to escape lightly. Um, the papers remained in this location until 1756, when they moved to rooms closer to the Secretary of State's office, um, and the gate was finally demolished in 1759. How were they used? The state papers, as kept in the state paper office in the 16th and 17th centuries, were used first and foremost as a reference library to inform policy making. And the searches I've described, Wilson undertaking, shows it so mostly as a working office um, for the secretaries of state. 
and the background to relations with foreign powers was vital for the conduct, conduct of diplomatic affairs. And again, Wilson was frequently called upon to supply summaries of past negotiations. Um, for example, in 1624, he supplied Sir Edward Conway with secret articles of the Treaty with Spain concluded in 1604. Um, in a break from previous practice, when treaties were enrolled on the charter rolls, treaties were kept within the state paper office, but due to the lack of any strict archival practice, important documents frequently went astray. And in 1706, it was noted that the officer, Mr. Tucker, cannot tell where the Treaty of Ryswick remains, though it had been concluded only eight years before. Treaties concluded with Holland and Portugal in 1654 were found for sale, one at an auction and one at a street stall, um, and luckily purchased and returned to the state paper office. Papers could be taken out of the office by state officials, and although Thomas Wilson kept careful lists of documents removed, there were inevitable losses when they failed to be returned. As the interest in history grew in the 17th century, so others wished to gain access to the state papers. In 1623, Wilson was asked by the Earl of St Albans to have the papers that remain in the custody of King Henry VIII's time. Wilson reminds the king that he is tied by strict oath to deliver nothing out of the office unless to the lords and others of his majesty's council. But this permission appears to have been given on a number of occasions. In 1617, John Evelyn was lent several volumes of papers relating to the war with Holland, and he didn't return them until 1672. In 1679, Gilbert Burnett was given permission to have documents for research into his reformation of the Church of England, um, and other researchers consulted them from peerages. We also know that Wilson's arch enemy, Robert Cotton, made use of the state papers, um, as there's a note in Wilson's hand showing how Cotton assisted William Camden's research for the history of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and it reads, papers which Sir Robert Cotton perused and transcribed at diverse times out of the office of His Majesty's papers, partly before I had the office and partly which he got licence for from His Majesty for the verifying of the story which Mr Camden has set forth, or under that pretext, from 1559 to 1589. And I possibly think some of these papers are now in the British Library. <laughs> um, so to conclude... The lack of authority of the position of the Keeper of the State Papers in the 16th century goes some way to explaining why State Papers can be found at the National Archives, the British Library, as well as in private collections. That the State Papers for the period of James I's reign are sparser than for other periods has been put down variously to the deliberate removal of papers by corrupt officials, lost due to fire, or even down to the fact there was less business carried out by the Secretary of State in this period. It could also be suggested that the personality of the keeper had a direct impact on the completeness of the records, as one of Wilson's successors, William Boswell, appears to have had far more success in gaining papers of state, possibly as he was also clerk of the Privy Council. The wonder of a tool such as state papers online is that it brings a sheen of completeness and simplicity to a collection such as state papers. But delve any further into the history of this uneven series, and it quickly becomes apparent that it is deceptively complicated and it is wise to bear several points in mind when using it. First of all, as I have outlined, it was a rather ad hoc collection of papers for much of the 16th and 17th century, and does not reflect the State Paper Office archive as it existed then. The series was not stable, as we have seen in Wilson's letters. Collections were continuously being pulled into the office through bequests and seizures, and documents were lost due to carelessness and theft. 
Secondly, after the State Paper Office became the Public Record Office, material was brought from other repositories, and the bulk of the papers now found in SP1 to 7, uh, came, such as the confiscated papers of Thomas Cromwell and Cardinal, Wolsey, uh, Cardinal Wolsey's correspondence, can be included in this tranche. The third significant point to remember is that under the auspices of the State Paper Commission, the papers were reordered and had their original order broken up in order to create the calendars that we are so familiar with today. The value of Thomas Wilson's letters and papers is that they offer us a tiny glimpse of how and when certain documents made their way into the collection, and I hope this talk has demonstrated how important an awareness of the history of the state papers is for understanding this series. Many, especially the chronological series of sovereigns until 1706, have been calendared. That is, concise praises made in English in date order, and those summaries published in various volumes, Exhibit A, uh, such as this one, and on the screen you see a page from one of the published calendars for Charles I. You may well, therefore, see footnote references in books to calendars of state papers domestic or to calendars of state papers foreign. If the documents belo belong to the reign of Henry VIII, the reference might be to one of the 32 published volumes of Letters and Papers Henry VIII, which include many of the state papers for 1509 to 1547. And all these published works are on the open shelves in the map room and uh, should be found in most university and large reference libraries. Many of the published calendars have been scanned and are keyword searchable on British History Online, part of the Institute of Historical Research's website. To access certain volumes, including most of the calendars of State Papers Domestic, you or your institution do need, however, to subscribe, though the site is freely available here in the National Archives. And incidentally, by keyword searchable, I mean that the printed calendars and other finding aids can be searched rather than the documents themselves. A much more ambitious online project is State Papers Online, which Kate has already mentioned, uh, published by Cengage and available by institutional subscription. This is also available free at the National Archives and covers the Tudor and Stuart periods, 1509 to 1714. It too includes all the published calendars, but the great advantage with SBO, State Papers Online, is that you can actually see digitized images of the manuscripts themselves. It also brings together, as Katie said, related material, not only in the National Archives, such as the Privy Council, uh, but material in other collections, for example, the British Library. An advanced search facility on the site means you can narrow down searches to certain years or reigns or collections, and you can, of course, print out scanned images of the digitized documents, uh, such as this one in SP16, of a machine for attacking towns and castles. And all such images are linked to their entry in the published calendars or existing catalogues. And the site also contains useful essays, reference pages such as a list of principal officers of the Crown and State, key documents, and an image gallery, as well as abbreviations used in the published calendars. But do, however, remember that it does not go beyond 1714 and that not every SP class is included, though most are. Uh, well, to find out more, why not try, try the site out here at uh, National Archives under online records? It's an extraordinary achievement, and it revolutionizes our access to this great series. And finally, and I do mean finally, a reminder that there are a number of in-depth research guides on the state papers on the National Archives website, which you can download for free. So, with Edward Seymour's great sense of haste very much in mind, and the knowledge that you're now all dying to look up that reference on how to turn base metal into gold and silver, I think we ought to uh, finish at that point. So thank you very much.
This event was recorded live on the 8th of March 2012 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.